IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On the show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we induct four new albums into our IndieCast Hall of Fame. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. I'm about to break up with him over artistic differences. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? And by artistic differences, he means like the correct pronunciation of the word chugle and or waxahachie. Yeah, it's uh, it's really come to a head here. Uh, I, and I really feel like we're going to have to establish separate endeavors at some point. Uh, so uh, people who think it's pronounced... Waxahachie can go to one podcast, and people who think it's Waxahachie can go to the other podcast. Yeah, this is going to be sort of like a 50 Cent, like Kanye West sort of competition to see like who gets more followers just solely based on uh, the pronunciation of Waxahachie or... You know any any of these any other like indie band that has like a debatable pronunciation like Dunyan or whatever. You know <laughs> they got a new album coming out. We're gonna talk about Dunyan and boy. Oh yeah, and- let's talk about Dunyan. We could we can uh, revive the old uh, cranky indie fan conspiracy theory that Tame Impala <laughs> just jacked Dunyan. Like have you have you heard that conspiracy theory? I, I have heard it. What is, is it a conspiracy theory? If it's true, we know Kevin Parker was in the last. Like, he was just like me, doing, like, a blog spot in 2005, listening to Todd that long, and he's like, you know it would really, like, I, I can just see my vision. Ten years from now, Coachella is going to sound like this, except they sing in English. Well, I think the first record, Inner Speaker, definitely owes a debt to Dunyan, but then Kevin Parker discovered Michael Jackson and the rest was history, you know. Then he started digging in the crates, got his fingers dusty finding a copy of Off the Wall. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it may, I think you could describe Tame Impala as Dunyan meets Off the Wall. I mean, and, th- and that was a very successful formula. Obviously, he had the the great drum sounds and cool keyboard uh, tones that you get from a Dunyan record, but then you know you just put a really catchy song on top of it, and you have a billion streams, baby. Um, we should mention that our 100th episode is coming up very soon. This is our 98th episode. I don't know if you knew this, Ian, but we're only two episodes away from a major milestone in IndieCast history. Uh, and I don't know what we're going to do to celebrate it. I mean, we're, I, I feel like I was caught off guard by this. I didn't realize that this was coming up. So normally, if uh, we had our you know, our our stuff together here, we would be planning for months a special ga- gala episode to celebrate 100 eps, but I don't know what we're going to do. I feel like we're going to end up getting some veggie tray and throwing <laughs> it on a table, you know, and that's all we're going to have. It's it's going to be really half-assed. I'm, you know, that's my fear. I mean, if it's got the little, like, bell pe- the sweet bell peppers, like, I think that's, you know, good enough for me. As long as it isn't, like, just the carrot sticks and celery and ranch affair. I don't know. Maybe a 100th episode is, like, the one where we finally have guests or, uh, you know, Uprox makes us a plaque. Like, is 100 episodes the podcast version of, like, going platinum? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not really like a sign of success. It's just a sign <laughs> that you've stuck around and you haven't broken up. So I don't know if it's going platinum as much as I, I don't know what the equivalent would be. Like we're we're like the journeyman rock band that somehow got to their like sixth or seventh record, even though 
they haven't ever sold that many albums. You know, <laughs> we just keep going, and it works. Um, but you know, it, I think it is worth celebrating because as we saw this week, partnerships in the podcasting world can be tenuous and, and they can break up, even if you are really successful. Especially if like, you're really successful. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the thing about success because you know one minute you're just recording a pod, it's dudes rock, it's just we're in it together, and then you know the guys with the cigars and the briefcases full of money, you know, that come in from Spotify or Stitcher or Audible or one of these other places, and they just totally undermined podcast unity, and you end up with something like the Jesus and Marrow situation this week. Where we have like a genuine breakup here. Very uh, rare. Going on here. And look, I know there's a lot of fans out there who are heartbroken, you know, because they, they love Jesus and Mero as podcasters. They love them on Vice. They love them on Showtime. But I have to say, like, as a kind of impartial observer and as a lover of intra-band conflicts, because I do think of them as a band. They're not really a band, but I'm, I'm, I'm likening them to a band. It's kind of fun to have like a real breakup, you know, because nowadays I feel like no one breaks up. It's always like I'm going on hiatus or we're you know, amicably parting ways, but it's always leaving the door open for a reunion. And it seems like these guys, there's like genuine conflict here. Yeah, the, to the degree I followed it, there was like one very uh, notable, uh, one very notable piece of information that came out when they were like, you know, talking about it on Twitter. One of them said you know, shout out to like my staff. I think that was like something people keyed in on. And look, I mean, this, it sort of reminds me most of all of like, you know, when Sonic Youth broke up because, you know, they're quintessentially New York. Uh, everyone on my timeline loves them. And even if they were like the quintessential, oh my God, like this, they've taken this obscure art form to like incredible platforms. They broke up over like real mundane shit. You know, it seems like there was just creative differences, money, egos clashing. Whereas Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon broke up because, you know, Thurston Moore was sleeping around with his like biographer or something like that. Yeah. That was a crazy time. I think that was, uh, was that 2011? Yeah. It was about a decade. It feels like about a decade ago. And, uh, yeah, you had people, I mean, that felt kind of sordid to me. Yes. When you start having, uh, you know, like I'm Team Kim, or I'm—I don't think anyone was Team Thurston really at that <laughs> moment in time. Not. <laughs> but you know, you get into people's marriage. I mean, who knows what was going on behind closed doors there? I, you know, I don't really want to parse that too much. I am more of a fan of the breakup, like you were saying, where it's uh, like a Beatles situation. Like, oh, this guy's getting too many songs on the record. This guy's getting too much credit. You know, I'm feeling. Uh, you know, disrespected. That seems like that's more of what the situation is in Jesus and Marrow. I mean, from what I've seen, it seems like Jesus is like into traveling. He's going all around the world. It seems like he's interested in acting. And maybe Marrow was more about hosting a show and holding down the fort. And there's also like this Anna Kendrick thing. Are you familiar with the Anna Kendrick? When anything you tell me about this, uh, I will believe. I have no, I have no clue where you're about to take this. I'm. I mean, I, I read like an article about this to to keep me abreast. Because again, like I, I, I wrote a book about rivalries. I am addicted to pop culture, drama. You know, intra band, intra duo conflict. 
I'm I'm like a moth to a flame with this stuff. So, uh, I, you know, I I like Jesus and Mero. I wasn't like a super fan, but I liked the show. But like, I'm more interested in this breakup probably than I was even in what they did together. But yeah, apparently, there's speculation that Jesus is in some kind of relationship with Anna Kendrick, who I thought was dating Bill Hader, but I guess they broke up. <laughs> Did you know Anna Kendrick and Bill Hader were dating? Uh, for I a do long not. Time? This is all. This is new information. We are we are hashing out trends outside of my typical scope. We are so far astray from indie rock right now. There, <laughs> like like the the part of our listenership that gets angry about us talking about like the 1975 too much and not enough about you know, Dunian. hardcore indie rock. <laughs> They're just blowing a stack. They probably have turned this off by now. Um, but, yeah, apparently, you know, people are calling her, like, the Yoko Ono of Jesus and Mero. I don't know. I I have no opinion on that. That seems... And, like, look, Yoko Ono, she didn't break up the Beatles. I love Yoko Ono's music. I'm not taking a shot at Yoko Ono. That's, I'm just saying what other people were saying. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I like seeing a real breakup. You know, I feel like breakups now, they're so sort of like HR managed, you know, no one, like what was like the last kind of like messy breakup? Was it Sonic Youth? Uh, I mean, at that big of a level, like, I mean, that was a breakup as opposed to a cancellation. So we have to like factor that in there as well. Um, But yeah, I mean, uh, like what what you're doing, what, what I'm hearing from you is just manifesting your next book, which is just all about breakups of like podcasting duos you have like moved on from like rivalries like with between bands like you know black keys and jack white to like the simmering tension that is inevitable with any duo but you know what that's never gonna happen to us though like we that's true (laughs) yeah because again like we're we're still in the van we're still playing clubs like we're like we're the working class podcasters (laughs) we're not letting success get to our head we're keeping it real keeping it on the ground and that's going to save us, I think. That being said, I, I I think you being on the Paul Feinbaum show, like I saw that and <laughs> I swear to God, like I think that's going to, if, if not, like how funny would that be if that were the tipping point? But it just might because I mean, I started out like my humble origins, my true DIY days uh, started when I took my first paid writing job at AOL Fan House. Like shout out to anyone who remembers that. Shout out Jamie Matram, gave me my first job. Uh, I wrote about like UVA football, like I wrote about ACC football. My first viral blog spot post was comparing college football programs to different rappers. And it's like, that would be like going on Paul Feinbaum show to talk anything. Like, uh, yeah, I figured, I figured if anyone on any cast would be doing that, it would be me. But you have pull in the SEC, apparently. Yeah, you know. This is so. I, I love that you were excited that I went on the Paul Feinbaum show. Like you were, uh, like I think even more pumped than me. And I have to say, so I've been on his show twice. And this most recent time I was on, it was to promote the pre-sale of my new book, Long Road: Pearl Jam and the Soundtrack of a Generation, due in store September twenty seventh. Uh, quick plug there. Um, and he wasn't on, it was a guest host. And it actually was probably better because the guest host was like around my age and he had he actually knew like what I was writing about. <laughs> I don't think Paul Feinbaum would have really known. I mean, the reason why I've been on this show is that there's a producer at the show who uh, likes my books and he's been very kind 
at offering these opportunities to be on the show. So like I, he, he first reached out to me a few years ago and I think we talked about Twilight of the Gods then, even though that book had been out for a while, but talking about classic rock, that was more in Feinbaum's wheelhouse. I think in the summertime, you know, they have more time to talk about pop culture <laughs> stuff. Like my book's not coming out till September. And the producer was like, you know, we're going to be deep into college football by then. So I don't, think that would really work but if you want to come on now that would be great and i was like yeah definitely and i have to say like you know when it comes to book promotion i love going on sports talk radio i love going on sports podcasts uh because it's just a bigger audience than talking to like a music podcast or publication even though i love talking to those places too um but you really do realize when you go on a show like that how it's it's kind of like when comedians would go on Johnny Carson, like the family of the comedian could now feel like this person has a real job. <laughs> like when I, like when I went on Paul Feinbaum, I had so many people reach out to me who are in my life, who know what I do for a living, but they don't really get it. And they're like, Oh, I get it now. Like you're like a music writer. Like it was like legitimizing for like uncles of mine or, you know, cousins of mine. When I was on Paul Feinbaum, you know what you know? you know what that thing was for me when I interviewed Gene Simmons about his uh, restaurant for RollingStone.com. <laughs> this is what Gene Simmons said. Like it's like, hey, this is Ian Cohen from Rolling Stone, and Gene Simmons says without a fucking beat, RollingStone.com. It was like the <laughs> it was the worst insult I will probably ever get in my life. Man, I got to tip my cap to Gene Simmons on that one. That's like a pretty sly <laughs> slam there, which was totally unnecessary. Like, why did he have to take a shot at you? Well, because it was Rolling Stone. Like, I mean, like their beef with Kiss or no, it's more like a one-sided Kiss beefing with Rolling Stone. I also think there was like a lawsuit pending about uh, Gene Simmons's restaurant uh, stealing Rolling Stone's font or something like I didn't know this. At the, that we could talk about this for an entire podcast. That was like one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had in my life. But this was 2012. Like I looked back on that article and it presaged the presidency of Donald Trump so accurately that uh, I, I I feel I just feel dirty. Although it's a really funny fucking story. <laughs> so you interviewed Gene Simmons. I once interviewed Paul Stanley. So like we we have between us we have the power center of Kiss represented on this show. I interviewed Paul Stanley in 2006 uh, for his solo record "Live to Win." <laughs> is the name of his solo record. That is such a great like Kiss album, Kiss solo album title in 20, 2006, "Live to Win." Oh, it's true. I can picture the argue cover. With it. I can picture the Guitar World article. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's great. It was great. He was, he was hilarious, too. I kind of was disappointed that he didn't talk the way he does on Kiss Alive, where I'd be like, Hi, Steve! <laughs> Do you like gin? <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. I was hoping for that, but he was much more restrained and everything it's funny with those two because i feel like stanley is like pretty woke now like he's pretty progressive on twitter uh whereas uh, gene simmons is not absolutely not no as a matter of fact that whole restaurant was like a tribute to the troops like we all had to sing (laughs) i swear to god like it was either the national anthem or god bless america but before we sat down to eat 
like they played something on the screen and like like you were at a football game and it was also like i think opening in in near the airport in la which is a little bit more military based but yeah it was like like i was saying it was like you could see donald trump's future at that restaurant and i mean gene simmons like what did he do to get out of the vietnam war i mean you know he was in that generation to get drafted and I'm sure he pulled some shenanigans to get out of that. I, I'm not casting aspersions. I, I could be totally wrong. Maybe uh, there was a legitimate excuse. I'm pretty sure he didn't go to Vietnam, though. I got to dig into the Wikipedia here, but I'm like 99% <laughs> sure that Gene Simmons did not fight in Vietnam. Uh, this this could be a topic for another episode. Yeah, this is our 100th perhaps. episode. Like, we're just going into, like, why did Kiss get out of the Vietnam War? I think this is, like, <laughs> it, it's it, it's like a completely non-meat episode. Like, we're just going to, like, pick some random shit like that and just see if we can go off for an hour. Like, we're going straight into jam band territory. Oh, man. I, I'm just imagining, like, you know... <laughs> Ace freely in the military, like what that would have been like. That's the Kiss Army. It'd be amazing. It'd be, exactly. That was the excuse. We can't join the American Army because we already are part of the Kiss Army. Uh, we've renounced our citizenship in the United States to join the the Kiss Nation of the world. So they were conscientious objectors on on those grounds all right well let's get to our mailbag segment i think once we start talking i mean that was like the weirdest banter we've had in a while i have to say that was like the least indie rock we talked about paul feinbaum we talked about uh anna kendrick possibly breaking up Jesus and marrow talking about kiss's military record uh extremely non-indie rock this week man i hope that i hope the heads aren't disappointed out there um Thank you all for writing in. It's always great uh, to hear from our listeners. If you want to hit us up, we're at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, Ian, you want to read our letter this week? Yeah, I always love like when it's, hey, Ian, you want to read our mailbag? It's usually one that uh, pertains more to my interest. And Nick from Boston has not disappointed. Also, Nick from Boston, very cool IndieCast name. Uh, Love it. It, it. Also, just a great sports talk. Right? He could call into <laughs> Paul Feinbaum, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, Nick from Boston? We got to get him in there. Yeah, but Boston's not really a college football town. So if it, That's true. Yeah, if it was more like, you know, Nick from Macon, Georgia, you know, wanted to talk That's about true. the Crimson Tide's uh, secondary. All right. But right. Nick from Boston, however, he wants to talk more about pop punk. So second time, long time. <laughs> I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts on The Wonder Years, the band, not the show. This seems like the type of band that could have a place in the IndieCast canon, but I don't recall more than a passing message, passing mention in past episodes. I'd imagine this band falls more towards Ian's end of the IndieCast spectrum, though they do have some Springsteen-esque anthemic hooks, similar to their Turnpike-adjacent contemporaries, the Menzingers and Gaslight Anthem, that could appeal to Steve. I'm a fan of most of this band's catalog, in particular their 2013 album The Greatest Generation, which I think is one of the best pop-punk-slash-emo albums of the past decade. I also think Dan Campbell is one of the more interesting lead singers in this scene. I never thought I'd say this sentence. Check out their recent Pitchfork feature if you haven't already. They've cracked the Pitchfork code. The singles they have dropped from their upcoming album, The Hum Goes On Forever, have been solid. So I'd love to hear your opinions on an upcoming episode. So, Steve, Wonder Years. Well, yeah, so it's interesting you and I have a similar background with this band a bit because, just to concur with Nick from Boston, I am also a fan of The Greatest Generation. Uh, 
that album coincides, I think, with like the peak of my interest in the Wonder Years. Like I was really into that album when it came out. I actually wrote about the Wonder Years when I was at Grantland. Uh, I wrote an article for them in 2014. I know you did too. You you wrote about it. I think when that record came out, right? Like in 2013. I did. I love the fact we've both written about the Wonder Years for Grantland. Yeah, oh, it's hilarious. Yeah, love Grantland, man. You could write two articles on the Wonder Years within a year of each other. And get away with it. Yeah, cause I, I went to a show that they played in uh, Chicago where the Wonder Years were headlining and Modern Baseball was opening. Oh, yeah. I wrote an article about that tour as well for Wondering Sound. Um, it was the Wonder Years, Fireworks, Citizen, Modern Baseball, uh, Real Friends, and oh, my God, there's one more band that I'm forgetting. Uh, Fuck. All right. It's going to, it's going to kill me, but it was like six, ba- it was like five bands on that tour and I interviewed them all. So like we have like very intersecting paths here. Yeah. And I, I believe the mo- modern baseball might've gone on first uh, at the show I was at. I was at the house of blues in Chicago, even though it was like the house of emo and pop punk that night, but house of blues in LA too. <laughs> I saw modern baseball cause I was writing about them as well in that article. And then I went backstage uh, to interview Dan Campbell, and I remember Dan hugged me when he saw me, and we had never met before, and we had never really even talked outside of DMs, but he was a very friendly, gregarious guy, I remember. And uh, I remember, too, that we talked a lot about past matchups between the Packers and the Philadelphia Eagles, <laughs> because because they're from Philadelphia, he's a big sports fan, he had joked in... Um, our DMs that in the interview that he only wanted to talk about pro wrestling and, and football. Um, and we didn't talk about pro wrestling, but we did talk about football in particular, the fourth and 26 game Hell yeah! between the Packers and Eagles, which of course he loved. And for me, it's like one of the worst days of my life as, as a sports fan. Um, definitely like a top five, maybe top three worst Packers loss in the playoffs uh, of all time. Although during the Aaron Rodgers era, there have been many contenders for the top three. It's really expanded the field, uh, but I digress. Uh, yeah, I mean, I really like the greatest generation. I have to say that after that, I became maybe more of a dabbler in the Wonder Years where I would check out their records and I would always like certain songs, but not be totally sold. I still feel like that record for me hits the hardest uh, and if you're a fan of the band, that might be a really irritating take. Like, it's probably annoying to hear someone say that, um, because this band has like a really committed fan base. And one thing that Dan Campbell talked about when I interviewed him was how much care they put into maintaining that fan base. And that was something I was really interested in at the time, comparing them to indie rock bands who I think often are a little more sort of hands-off with fan engagement, whereas, like, you know, Wonder Years were doing, like, pre-show Q&A sessions and acoustic shows and all this kind of fan outreach, and I thought that was really interesting, and I think it's definitely paid off for them, you know, we're 10 years later, and there's... I don't know if they've gotten bigger. Would you say they've gotten bigger, or they are, or they are about the same level? I would say that uh, they are about the same level. Like maybe, maybe they're about like the same level of popularity, but maybe it's a little bit spread out more than it was back in 2013. I do think that um, you know the fact that they are getting like not just an album review, but like a feature on Pitchfork is a major deal. Like when I interviewed them in 2017 for Spin, that was also indicative of like their uh 
desire to kind of look the the whole crux of that article was like they love and respect their fan base so much but like you play pop punk for so long you want to be able to like not be pigeonholed in there and so that's what kind of sister cities tried to do in 2017 i think it's worth mentioning in that article that i i remember talking to dan and i'm an eagles fan he's like yeah i literally cried like a baby when the eagles won the super bowl so dan campbell is like an indie cast dude through and through uh oh absolutely he could come on and co-host maybe this that's show. the 100th episode so uh, <laughs> yeah, I think with like, um, the wonder years, like I think the greatest generation is their peak. I know quite a few people would say suburbia. I've given you all I've got in 2011 was their peak, but nonetheless, like the greatest generation really hits me as someone who grew up around where they did. And, um, you know, I, I think it was more, it was like this real good balance of like personal, but like also generational, like political framework of it all. Like, uh, so it was sort of like Heartland Rock, except suburban Philadelphia, uh, in terms of like tone. Um, after that, I'm a little bit a la carte. I never think they've really gotten the production right on their albums. Uh, they're even the one they did with like Joe Ciccarelli in 2017. Um, he's like a guy who's produced like Jason Mraz and like My Morning Jacket and Frank Zappa. It was still like really sharp and brittle that didn't quite support the songwriting. Great songs though. And this new one, I'm excited for it as well. I think they got Will Yip on this one. And uh, see, yes. that's a, that's the guy you want. I think that will work. Yeah, Joe Ciccarelli, you know, I feel like he has like a kind of a checkered past with being the producer that indie bands go to to level up, you know, and then he makes a record that doesn't quite work like i know he did like a white stripes record you, you mentioned um my morning jacket i think that was evil urges it was evil urges it was definitely evil urges <laughs> which i know some people love but it's indisputable that that record derailed them to some degree in terms of their commercial momentum um i think he's done a uh, broken social scene record he did like a shins record too yes. i think he did wincing the night away I think I'm, that was the one, yeah. I think he did that one, which, again, that record has some partisans, but generally people feel like the first two are better. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why he keeps getting hired. He's like the Don Was of indie <laughs> rock. Like, Don Was makes these sort of dodgy uh, middle-aged rock records. That's what Joe Ciccarelli is for indie bands, I think. So beware of Joe Ciccarelli indie bands out there. Not sure if he's the best choice for you, but will, yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely psyched yeah. for that. I think that could be a really good combination. Do you feel like they have stopped wanting to be a crossover band and have sort of decided, okay, this is what we do. We're really good at it. We're not going to try to you know, be more of a mainstream indie band. I mean, do you feel like they've reached that point? I think they've reached a point where uh, I, th I think they're more in the incoming call business when it comes to trying to you know, reach out and like maybe get covered in other publications because I don't ever thought they were trying to be like, you know, a mainstream indie band. I think they just wanted to be seen as something other than like a pop punk band, you know, that to be able to like tour with um, other, you know, bands that are more indie as opposed to, you know, just doing tours with like other bands that were on hopeless records or things like that. And I think they've reached a point where um, 
when they do put out new albums and which happens like every four years nowadays, uh, it'll be well received because the people who grew up on their early albums are now music writers. And, you know, th- and I think there's a lesson in that. It's like if you if you stick with it long enough um, and you continue to put out good work and like do fan outreach, like eventually your breakthrough out of the pop punk uh, world will happen just because your fans will be music writers themselves. It's the cycle of life. Yeah. And you know, you can't dismiss a legacy band, a band that has hung around and, and, and done it. I mean, they, they feel they're not like this musically, but they kind of feel to me like what the national is in indie rock. Like that's what they are in pop punk. They're just like this band that keeps going. They do their thing. And you can rely on them, and even the haters over time start to fade away because you can't deny what the, the body of work and what they've done. So I think that's what the Wonder Years are. So yes, they get our respect here at IndieCast. And I would just say, like, if you feel like a band like the Wonder Years isn't your thing, I would definitely check out The Greatest Generation. I think that that is a record that can connect with people that maybe don't normally listen to this kind of music. All right, we are now at the meat of our episode, and I believe we did meet the 30 minutes or less requirement this week. We didn't do it last week. We went a little overboard with the banter. (laughs) But even with all of our wacky banter this week, we got it in under 30 minutes, so I feel good about that. You don't have to send this episode back for a free episode at another time. Uh, We're talking about the IndieCast Hall of Fame here. We're inducting four albums, two each for both of us here. Ian, do you want to explain to the people what the IndieCast Hall of Fame is? So the IndieCast Hall of Fame is, uh, you know, we've talked about Dan Campbell from the Wonder Years being like a a total IndieCast type of dude. Uh, These are real like IndieCast type of albums um, in the sense that they probably have some sort of crossover between, you know, my taste and Steve's taste. And these are not like, you know, we're not going to talk about, say, OK Computer. We're not going to talk about, like, Vitology. We're not going to talk about ours distorted lullabies. You know, these, like, <laughs> widely acknowledged canon classics. These, yes. these are ones that are, like, you'll probably, like, oh, yeah. I rem-. It's it's kind of like a remember some guys element to it. But um, something that's been either underrated or underappreciated or... In the case of like two of the ones that I'm going to talk about, something that are like really out of time that make you remember, oh, this was like 2003 or this is 1998. Do, do you think I got like a good, do you think I, do you think I nailed it there? Yeah, that sounds about right. I will say I, I, I love inserting hours distorted lullabies into that litany of classic records. I think that they're in the, in, in the IndieCast Hall of Fame though. I think, didn't you induct hours <laughs> distorted lullabies? I probably did. And you know, yeah, one of these days. It's gonna, in there. One of these days, I'm going to like put Precious in there. They're a uh, highly divisive Ethan Johns produced follow up. Uh, maybe we get Jimmy Nico to swing by the 100th episode. Maybe play a song or two for us. You think that? Do you think we could make that happen? Uh, we got two I, I weeks. Have little doubt we can make that happen. So um, I'm going to go first here and induct my uh, one of my albums into the IndieCast Hall of Fame. And I had actually double-check to make sure that I hadn't already inducted this because this seems like a record that should already be in the IndieCast Hall of Fame. I'm sure that there were people out there, you know, the, the, the writers out there who cover IndieCast, they were complaining about us ignoring this record, leaving it out of the Hall of Fame for way too long. 
but I'm finally going to rectify that today. I'm talking about Constantine's self-titled record, their debut from 2001. Now, who are the Constantines? Well, they're this band from Ontario, Canada, who formed in 1999. And, uh, you know, I think just right there, you know that they're an indie cast band. This is an indie rock band from Canada, very much up our, our alley. We love the Canadians. Uh, I would describe them, and I think a lot of people have described them, as basically Bruce uh, Springsteen meets Fugazi. I think that was like the thing that a lot of people used to describe this band. And of course, that's a very IndieCast type description. Basically, you have a bunch of Canadian guys in flannel shirts rocking out with like really gravelly voices. Like that's what this band is. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting because I feel like their best known record is their second record called Shine a Light. came out in 2003. That album probably represents like the peak of their indie fame. But... And I love that record, by the way. I think that's a fantastic record. I actually considered inducting that one. But I think I ultimately went with the first record because I think that this album is an underappreciated touchstone for bands that came along later and became better known. Uh, and I would say that like the template that this band helped to create, certainly like an aughts-era indie, was like this sort of anthemic art-punk template that bands like The Hold Steady... Titus Andronicus fucked up and like even like a band like the, the Gaslight Anthem. I feel like all those bands hopped on that. That sort of again Springsteen-y type indie rock, which I think really came into fashion in the mid-aughts. But I feel like when Constantine's made this debut record, they were like a little bit ahead of the curve. And you know, I, I you just start with this record. You have the first song on the record, it's called Arizona great song and it's about the suicide of this guy named Danny Rapp who was a 50s rocker he was in this group called Danny and the Juniors their most famous song is At the Hop which I think people probably know that song it's like a sort of like an archetypical 50s rock song that you used to hear on oldies radio and like the opening line of the record is uh this is a song about the death of Danny Rapp in the great gospel jest called rock and roll like right there you know what you're getting into when you hear a line like that and again i think you can hear echoes of those other bands that i mentioned that are going to be coming down the pike a little bit after uh constantine's and you know again like i love shine a light i think that is like the sort of refined second album whereas the debut is like the sort of like raw an unrefined first record, and that's a dynamic that exists with a lot of bands. Sometimes I like the second record more than the first. In this case, I have to go with the first record. I mean, there's just so many incredible bangers on this album. I love the song Young Offenders, like the breakdown at the end of that song. Just cue that song up. The ending just rocks so hard. It, it, it's just phenomenal. And you know, I like to think of this record in the context of the year that it came out in, which is 2001, the year of is this it by the Strokes? Uh, you know, White Blood Cells by the White by the White Stripes. You know, those were the records that the media really latched onto as being like at the vanguard of rock and roll or like the future of rock and roll. And Constantine's had their partisans, but they didn't get the same kind of attention that those bands got. And I do wonder about like an alternate reality, like where critics went as crazy for the Constantines as they did for the Strokes, and like how that might have shaped. Uh, indie rock in the 2000s. Again, I think this band ended up being influential with their own cr 
career tra trajectory, even though they kind of ran out of steam by the end of the aughts. Uh, they put out a record called Tournament of Hearts in 2005. That was pretty good. And then I think in 2008, there was a record, I believe it's called Kensington Heights. Like the records basically got quieter as they went along and I think a little less powerful. Um, but I don't know. This is a great record, great band. I think they have their fans, but f there's definitely a lot of people who have never heard of this band or heard this record. If you like the bands I mentioned, definitely check this out. It's IndyCast Hall of Famer, Constantine Self-Titled. Yeah, I think they're also Japan Droid's favorite band of all time. So oh, even, that totally makes sense. Yeah, so even if like this band sucked, it would have they we'd have to acknowledge them as you know basically being responsible for the podcast you're listening to now. I like this band a lot too. I'm more of a shine shine a light uh, partisan. Nighttime, anytime is like that. That song, like right there, is just like. If you ask me what kind of music you're into, I would say that. And I think that the Constantines are a great example of uh, what I would like to hear, which is that if you are doing like a Fugazi Springsteen sort of thing, like tip the scale more towards Fugazi. We've really erred towards the side of Bruce Springsteen. And, you know, that can get a little bit caricatured very easily. But, um, yeah, again, it's like the sort of band that could get not famous but indie famous in 2001 while also being overshadowed i think a band like this if they were to come out today i don't think they would get the same sort of attention that they did back then so this is perfect indie cast stuff it's a band kind of stuck between stations to quote a hold steady song i can do that too <laughs> there you go what's your first inductee into the indie cast hall of fame all right, so with this choice, I feel like I'm trying to manifest a couple of IndieCast mailbag questions. Uh, this is like a Russian nesting doll of like these subgenres that we talk about, where you get you have a band with like a massive catalog, but only one good album, and it's even more rare when that one good album isn't the debut. I know, particularly with like rap, you get like that classic uh, debut album, then you kind of draft off that success for the rest of your career. Um, this is even more rare to find a band with a massive catalog with one good album and it's not the debut. And actually the other albums are mostly awful. Um, with all due respect, I'm thinking like placebo is an example. I know with say anything is a real boy is just a lot better than everything else they've done. And like bands like this usually result in me reviewing, like just panning the shit out of like one or two albums that they do because it's like, oh, Ian likes this band. Why don't we assign it to him? And you just kind of resent the fact that 45 minutes of excellent music have made you invested in this band <laughs> that just got like light. They got really lucky on one album. And so this one, Eels Electroshock Blues. It's also in a subcategory of one hit wonders who actually made a better album the next time out blind melon soup the Benz is kind of an example of that so who are eels um you probably I, I would imagine most of our listeners know who eels are they had a more or less a beck ripoff hit with novocaine for the soul back in 1996 um after beck you started to see a ton of artists like this uh you know kind of deadpan and ironic pose kind of Dust Brothers style production. I worked at The Gap in 1998 and you would hear so many bands like this. Like Brand it's so Man 3000. Yeah. I feel like it's the most 90s music like, of all of the subgenres. Like that is the most of its time. And I can't ever see it coming back into fashion. 
Like, it just seems so of its time and old-timey. But who am I to say? I don't know. There's people for whom that might just be amazing. And like, younger people who will just be blown away by it. But yeah, Eels was definitely a part of that. Yes. And Electroshock Blues was a very specific subgenre of late 90s alternative rock. Like, that was on the DreamWorks label that uh, Steven Spielberg kind of helped finance. This is where you start to see... I think like Elliot Smith was on DreamWorks, at least the major label albums, um, and a bunch of stuff I've forgotten. But it's it's like alt rock, but there's more kind of like there would be like you know record scratching on there or like string samples. Um, again, extremely dated, and yet Electroshock Blues is their second album, and it was it's it was mostly about like Mark Everett E. Uh, their family, people in their family, like uh, dying from cancer. Um, and so it's kind of this like a uh, very dark conceptual album about death and, uh, you know, just thinking about, you know, the pointlessness of life. Um, and so this sort of framework allowed the things that became so curdled and just cringe on the next few albums. Like he sort of got this like Mark Marin. Uh, you know, like he's really a curmudgeon, but if you dig down deep, he's actually like a really sweet guy sort of thing. Um, that became like real shtick on every other Eels album. But this one, I feel almost guilty loving this album because it, it almost implies that like, you know, death is the thing, like real death, like real pain is the sort of thing that can, I don't know, focus his artistic talents because, you know, he can write a catchy song. Uh, and he can do so very easily, uh, but vaguely related, I wrote an Eels review in 2018, which again, that's like, what What have I done to deserve this? What I actually did in that review is just, um, I plagiarized previous Eels reviews from Pitchfork. Like I just wrote one paragraph where I just stole lines from previous reviews just to see if anyone would notice uh, to make a point about how Eels albums are made, where it's just E completely ripping himself off. Um, but again, like it, I, I want to not like this album when I go back to it, but it just kind of levels me every single time. Um, maybe it's because I heard it when I was 18 and it seemed profound. But, um, you know, there are just some really beautiful songs, really like dark and deeply felt ones. There's a song called Climbing to the Moon, which is a duet with Grant Lee Phillips. Grantley Buffalo was a last minute cut from this episode as far as IndyCast Hall of Famers. We'll probably hear them uh, going forward. Um, so that, was it Mighty Joe Moon? Was that the one you were thinking oh, of? Oh, yeah. Mighty Joe Moon. Oh, man. Yeah, we got to get that in at some point. Yeah. So, You're on deck. <laughs> uh, I saw Grantley Buffalo. I found out about them because they opened for R.E.M. on the Monster Tour. So, again, pure IndyCast. Yeah. So, Electroshock Blues is, um, I I just can't describe why it still brings things up in me, despite the fact that Eels has made just so much garbage music in the time since. But again, to make like one classic album is really, really hard. So I can't hold it against Eels for like only having Lightning Strike once. Well, I I really like that pick. I like the idea of picking just a great album by an artist that you feel like has unbalanced, just put out a lot of bad records. So I think that was like a cool choice. It's a good like left field choice to put that in. And I feel like you've thrown down the gauntlet. I think on my next 
you know, slate of inductees, I'm going to have to try to think of a similar situation of a record I love by someone I just think has put out a lot of bad records. And the only instance that's coming to mind for me right now is The Suburbs with Arcade Fire. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like I, especially over time, like I've not really liked, I mean, Funeral I like. I don't like it as much as a lot of people. Anyway, I've opened a can of worms with that. <laughs> With that one, let's just move on. We'll, we'll, I'll, I'll elaborate that maybe some other time. Um, my next inductee uh, is a band from Denmark. They're called Mew, M-E-W. And the record I want to talk about is called And the Glass-Handed Kites. In uh, this album, it came out in Europe in 2005. It was released in America uh, the following year. And I remember uh, I read the review of this record in Pitchfork, and it was written by the by the great Nisu Ababa, who I think one of the great music writers of our generation. Love him. And he doesn't write record reviews anymore. He's a editor now at New York Times Magazine, but he was one of the great critics, I think, of the aughts in early 2010s. And he reviewed this record, and I believe it got an 8.4 from Pitchfork. And he described it as Queensryche meets Sigur Rós, which I thought, that's a perfect description of this record. Essentially, you have this very, on one hand, sort of atmospheric art pop band from Europe. On the other hand, you have these just totally bonkers prog rock influences going on with this band. And it really results in this sound that, I'm going to say this with a straight face, I think this is kind of like a magical sounding record. And I mean that in the sense that uh, I think it's a beautiful record. There's like a lot of things going on that are really moving, but it also kind of sounds like a magic show, you know, or, or or like a fairy tale. There's something very sort of fanciful about this record that I could see turning off a certain subset of listeners. You know, I could see people putting on this record and feeling like, whoa, this is like a little too much for me. But, you know, I, I revisited it recently and I found myself just getting swept up in it again, like I did in 2006. It, I should give a little bit of background on this band. They, they formed, like I said, in Denmark in 1995. They put out their first record in 97 called The Triumph for Man. I think they started getting some attention you know, here in America with uh, their record uh, Frangers, which came out in 2003. And then that set the stage for this record in the glass-handed kites, uh, which... Is a record that, you know, along with that brilliant Nisu Ababa description of Queensryche meets Sigur Rose, I would describe this record as like if Radiohead had decided that they were just going to double down on Paranoid Android, like over and over again on their subsequent records and just make it more grandiose, more beautiful, uh, you know, more, again, magical sounding uh, and really kind of move in more of like a Genesis type direction you know which is again obviously that's the opposite of what radiohead actually did but if they had done that i think it would sound a lot like this mew record um i also feel like there are some elements that remind me of m83 on this record like what they ended up doing on hurry up i'm dreaming i don't know if you feel that at all, like at all with this band but there is sort of like a twinkly dreamy quality to this record that that reminds me of a lot of that m83 record um, I mean, just revisiting this record, I mean, there's a song on here called The Zookeeper's Boy, which, okay, you know what you're getting with a song called The Zookeeper's Boy. You know, the whimsical element is off the charts here. 
but I, I, you know, whenever I hear it, it's like this combination. You have this like really aggressive bass line and rhythm section, and then it goes to the chorus, and it's again this super twinkly, dreamy, gooey, just beautiful vocal chorus, which. Again, I think for some listeners, they're going to feel like they bit into like the sweetest cream puff of all time when they hear this song. It might give them cavities. But for me, I just it, it, it's sublime. And this is a band that, you know, like I said, they got an 8.4 this record did in 2006 from Pitchfork. But I don't know. I don't hear a lot of conversation about this band really now. I feel like they've been kind of forgotten a little bit, you know, at least here in America. But uh, it seems like the kind of record that bands could, you know, rediscover and be really inspired by. Because I think there's a lot of ideas on this album. Uh, and there's a lot of sort of cool juxtapositions of things that normally don't go together. I don't know. I just, it, it totally holds up for me. Like, do you remember this record? Are you a fan of this album? <laughs> oh, Zookeeper, boy. I, I fucking love that song. Like, I, you know, the way you describe it, it's like got that aggressive bass, but it's twinkly and the vocals are super pristine. Yeah, shit's right up my alley. Um, <laughs> and also, you, there's a Jay Massis vocal cameo on this record, which, you know, in, in addition to everything Steve has said to describe it, you also have like fucking Jay Massis, like putting his vocals over it. Um, yeah, it's like, it, which is... That totally feels random on this album, but it works. Oh yeah, it, but it's like the and I don't know if he plays guitar. I think he's just singing, which normally you get Jay Mascus. You want him to play guitar. You're not really looking for his voice, <laughs> but they use him for his voice, and it has like a Mark Lanigan type quality. You know, he's like this gruff presence against the more again kind of uh, fanciful. Uh, vibe that this band gives off. So it's actually a really cool ca- cameo by him. So my favorite Mew album is the one that came out after this one. Uh, it's got no more stories. And then the album title goes on for like 15 minutes. But, um, you know, you were saying like uh, that this would be the kind of record that maybe people would rediscover now. Low key, this band is like super influential amongst like emo bands that are more prog. Um, they're almost, uh, they're almost kind of seen as like Coheed and Cambria-ish, maybe. I could see that. Um, I could definitely see that. I yeah. think that they're a little more pop-friendly, though, oh, than way Coheed. More. You know, like, yeah, a lot of these kind of proggy bands, they, they really kind of go into the weeds with very elaborate song structures, very elaborate concepts. This band isn't really like that. They have prog elements, but I think all the songs are really catchy and melodic and pop friendly so i i just realized too that we keep saying mew people might think that we're saying muse oh it kind of sounds like muse but it's but again it's m-e-w not m-u-s-e uh very similar bands in a lot of ways but like i'd say muse is more focused and not quite as wacky as muse is so if you want like a less wacky muse go with mew and glass-handed kites an indie cast hall of famer yes so the last album I'm going to talk about is actually got kind of similar qualities to uh, Mew in that uh, there's some proggy elements to it, a lot of sweetness with like this underlying kind of aggression. Um, this is uh, at the intersection of two particular indie cast favorite subgenres. The first of which is post OK Computer quote next Radiohead bands from the UK. 
and also Dave Fridman core. Um, Dave Fridman, of course, the producer who was in Mercury Rev and is most well known for doing uh, Soft Bulletin, would later go on to do uh, the first couple of Tame Impala records. Just a very, very long discography, but mostly known for you know heavy string sections, very distorted, low end. Um, and they are the Delgados. They are a Scottish band. Uh, they are from, I guess you would say the early 2000s and I, they just made a comeback announcement recently. I think it's funny. This one comes up, uh, about a week after we had the discussion of unwound and archers of loaf, like these bands that weren't exactly a listers. And, you know, sometimes I'll see bands like the Delgados announce a comeback and it'll just be like a few reunion shows in the UK. And I can't be that excited about it. Cause even if they were to come to the United States, it would be like three total shows, like one in LA, one in Chicago, and one in New York. And that's about it. But, um, so this, um, hate, it came out, I believe in two, I think it was similar to Mew in that it came out in Europe in 2002. Um, but eventually made its way to the United States in 2003 and again, just remember, there used to be a time where an album could come out in Europe first. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or just come out in one country or one, you know, nation. I mean, does that still happen? I feel like everything just comes out everywhere now. Yeah. I, but it must get staggered to some degree. Yeah, in some degree, maybe because like vinyl pressing or whatever. But um, so this was the sort of band that you had to discover because of the internet. I'm trying to remember how I found out about their 2000 album. The Great Eastern, that's sort of like the the self-titled Constantines to what this is, maybe the Shine of Light. Uh, but, you know, they got a lot of attention. They were in that sort of atmosphere of like Mogwai or Bell and Sebastian. Um, you know, kind of twee, but still pretty art rock. And so this one, though, it just, it just amplifies everything to 11 that the Great Eastern did. Um, they have a dual vocalist uh, thing going on. I know you've talked about liking that sort of dynamic and it switches like every single song. Um, it is, you'll have like this guy with a little more of a cynical kind of snide vocal and a very pretty song coming after that. Um, a lot of the songs are in waltz time, which don't hear that much anymore. <laughs> um, and there's like just prog elements, of these long string sections, uh, six and a half minute song length. But, you know, what makes this one stand out to me is, I mean, just look at the title. It's called Hate. And uh, <laughs> some, some of the, like, the, the big song uh, is All You Need Is Hate. You know, it's kind of like a Randy Newman-style skewering of All You Need Is Love. They also have songs called The Drowning Years and Child Killers. Um, not, like, more of, like, an angry, aggressive, like, hardcore sort of uh, thing, but more just this cynical worldview. I think it... It's like more similar to like McLusky, maybe not like as absurdist in its humor, but this was the kind of worldview that made a lot of sense to me when I first heard this at 22. It doesn't really hold the same weight that it did back then, you know, like it's it's still like very much appealing in like a Lewis Black sort of uh, way, you know, like that angry comedian who's like, this world's all bullshit and like so forth, but <laughs> Um, when I hear it now, I like it because, you know, the songs are very well constructed. They're very well beautiful. It's like good David Fridman as opposed to when you hear some bad David Fridman. He's sort of like Joe Ciccarelli in that there's like a lot of like variants in his catalog. Um, but I think like what appeals to me most of all is that this is like a they don't make them like this anymore and they never will type of record. 
I just can't imagine a situation where this sound comes back. And so the fact that it sounds dated, I actually view that as a positive. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so I want to talk about a band called Pool Kids. They have a self-titled record coming out today. Um, It's a follow-up to uh, their, I believe it was 2019 album called Music to Practice Safe Sex 2. That was actually 2018, uh, where Music to Practice Safe Sex 2 came out. So... In between the, you know, then and now, the big thing that happened to them is that Haley Williams from Paramore found word about them and said, this is what we were trying to sound like early on. And, you know, some of the vocals do have a bit of a Haley Williams tone to it, but they are way more kind of like math twinkle rock sort of thing. Um, there is a bit of a subgenre of this happening right now where, you know, people will combine fueled by ramen type melodies but with like more complicated like finger tapping and time signature switch ups um a lot of times this stuff is good for a song at a time but very rarely have i heard a band pull it off for an entire record i think this one really swings for the fences and for the most part like follows through um and the interesting part about it is that it's the pretty slower songs that hit more than like the more aggressive ones that uh you know kind of have talking like twitter speak Um, I think that this band still has like a little bit of room for growth to like make their true masterpiece, but like the way that this album steps up from their previous one, uh, just shows that they're a band with ambition. Uh, they're a band that knows how to like write a catchy song, uh, and make good arrangements. And I do see them as something that could really, really, really be, um, something that carries over throughout this year where at the end of the year, the punk and emo leaning sites call this one, one of the top albums of 2022. So pool kids, uh, big fan of this. So I just want to say that if Ian wouldn't have recommended this, I would have recommended it. Uh, cause I, I like this record a lot too. And you know, one thing I appreciate about this band, like you were saying, the combination of melody and really kind of like mathy, uh, instrumentation. I also think there's a lot of wit, in the songs as well, like I, I like that one song uh, where she's talking about being on a group chat with 21 goddamn yeah. people. Arms and like her, yeah, her and her phone crashes 37 times a day. Like I thought, you know, like that I appreciate. I appreciate the, you know, there's like a real sly sense of humor in a lot of the songs that I think really makes this record go down easy. Where I think, you know, when you have those mathy elements, it can maybe get a little too heady or intellectual or or technical but i think they balance the pop and the you know the finger tapping guitar hero pyrotechnics like really well it's a really entertaining record so definitely getting a cool endorse from me with that album but since ian is talking about the emo record which makes sense for him to do i will talk about a singer songwriter record which makes sense for me to do and that record is birds in the ceiling it's by a guy named john morland and morland is a guy who i think depending on your musical taste is either going to be like a really well-known person or completely anonymous uh if you are interested in americana music he has been i think one of the big names for the past say five to six seven years uh he's actually been putting out records since 2008 but i know i first heard about him 
in like the mid 2010s when he put out a record called High on Tulsa Heat. And that began a, a, a series of records that I think have really established him as like the singer songwriter's singer songwriter. Like, I think people used to say that about Jason Isbell, but like now Jason Isbell is like too famous, you know? <laughs> so, like, if you want to recommend a, a really good singer songwriter that, uh, that has a cult following but isn't really known in the mainstream yet. Uh, this is the guy I think that people talk about. And he has, again, he's gotten more attention, I think, in recent years. I know Amanda Petrosich profiled him for The New Yorker uh, a few years ago, so he's getting some of that kind of attention. But uh, I don't know. His new record, I don't really look at it as like a crossover-type album. I'm not sure if people who aren't into this kind of thing are now going to latch on because of this album. Although I think it is worth noting that on his recent records, he's branched out a bit from the sort of standard acoustic type instrumentation to incorporating some electronic elements into his music, almost like in a David Gray kind of way. But like, but like, you know, David Gray, if he was like from Oklahoma, you know, like more of like a, like middle American, you know, like Towns Van Zant. Towns Van Zant's from Texas, but you know, like that middle American singer-songwriter thing with like a little bit of like electronica going on underneath it. Um, and it's a pretty cool combination. And, and I think he's found a way to do that in a way that seems organic and not like he's sort of self-consciously trying to branch out. So again, if you are into like really good lyrics, really sort of understated emotionalism that kind of sneaks up on you, really gives you a gut punch, I think this is the record you're going to want to put on. I think it's a really good summertime record. If you're sitting in your lawn chair, sipping a beer, <laughs> put on this record. I think it'll go very well in that context. It's called Birds in the Ceiling, and it's by John Moreland. Yeah, fun fact. Uh, when I interviewed Barty Strange, he talked about going to, like, him and John Moreland were, like, college pals at Oklahoma, at University of Oklahoma. So, wow. Yeah, they. It, it's so wild because, like, Barty's like, yeah, I was coming up with uh, John Moreland and Samantha Crane. Um yeah, his his roots go really deep in the country world. And also, yeah, I, I feel like if we're doing IndieCast in like 2050 and we're on like our 10,000th episode, we're going to be talking about like uh, this is an IndieCast Hall of Famer just because you pitched it as David Gray from Tulsa. <laughs> well, that about does it for this episode of IndieCast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 